Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for giving us your word that we base our knowledge of you on. For in your word, God, you have revealed yourself as you are. Our understanding of you as God, creator, is not formed by our experiences of life in a creation from which we begin a journey to then conceive of a creator. But rather we begin with this creator's revelation of himself in his word. And God, your word doesn't change. And so we turn to it now, God, having had its truths guide all that we've done to this point, informing our confession, its truths being sung from our lips, prayed, our gifts given in light of its promises. So God, we ask now as we turn to it, we ask that you would would speak through your word. God, that your spirit that inspired these words would speak to our hearts, opening eyes to truth, convicting us of our ongoing need of your gospel's work in our lives. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified now as we turn to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to Matthew's gospel and find chapter 21. Matthew 21. And in view of the significance that we, the church, have afforded this day in our calendars and continuing with our short break from the judges, we're going to look today and next Sunday at the scriptural events with which these two most important days in our Christian calendars are associated, namely Christ's entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday today and his resurrection on Easter Sunday, which we remember next week. And I don't believe that this break which we've taken from judges could have come at a better time. For those of you who recall, two weeks ago we completed our study of Jephthah the judge whose saving imperfections, I believe, point us towards the promised Messiah, the deliverer who was despised and rejected as Jephthah was, who would proclaim God's great salvation as Jephthah did, and who was filled with a holy zeal and emotion that Jephthah shared, only tragically for his glory and not God's. And we noted then how these similarities revealed God's people's need of a Savior who would be like them in every way yet without sin. Israel needed a deliverer because they'd abandoned the Lord. They'd rejected God's ways, refused to listen to His Word. And as we've seen over the past several months, Judges, the book of Judges is a record of Israel's frightening moral decay and spiritual apostasy. Exposed to the allure of Canaan's false religions, God's people assimilated and Despite his continued provision of deliverers, ultimately they rejected them and in them him in favor of a king, a demand which God informed Samuel, Israel's penultimate judge or deliverer, would bring them much heartache. Judges records the dangers of spiritual assimilation, but much more importantly, as we've noted throughout our study to this point, it declares God's great salvation as he continued 
time after time to rescue his people. Each, each time pointing them forward to the day when one like them in every way except without sin would come to rescue them. And not only to rescue them, but then to rule over them as the king of kings and lord of lords. And church, it's this prophesied king's arrival and first inauguration in Jerusalem that we're going to examine together this morning. So if your Bibles are open to Matthew 21, let me invite you to follow along as I read beginning in verse 1. Matthew 21, verse 1, our author writes, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! In the highest, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind and lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, in this text, I believe Jesus finally, publicly, declared himself to be the promised king, the Messiah, pointed forward to all those many years ago by the judge's author and the prophets that then followed. And this is significant. This is significant because prior to this event, you may recall how Jesus very intentionally sought to silence such claims. If we look back to chapter 9 in Matthew, following his two healing of blind men there, Jesus, who these two men had appealed to Christ by this a moniker of Son of David, a clear messianic reference, Jesus warned them, see that no one hears about this. However, now, following an almost identical event recorded just one chapter prior, chapter 20, rather than concealing these two blind men's claim that he is the Lord, Son of David, Jesus declares himself to be exactly that, and he does so in a fourfold fashion, which must be noted isn't yet communicated with words, kind of like we talked about with the children earlier, but rather by actions. As he begins by riding a donkey, and I believe that Jesus' first declaration that he is the king is given us as he rides a donkey. But before we examine the significance of this action, notice how verse chapter 21 there, verse 1, opens with the phrase, as they approached Jerusalem. As they approach Jerusalem, where the they obviously includes Jesus and his disciples, but that's not all. And surprisingly, this they 
is composed of a much larger group. If you look back to chapter 20, verse 29, you'll see that this they also includes a large crowd, verse 29, who followed Jesus and who would likely have been pilgrims bound for Jerusalem coming from the region of Galilee by way of Jericho, the last settlement on their route to the city of David. And Church, I point this out because all that follows, namely verse 2 then through 10 here in chapter 21, involves just this crowd. And it occurs outside of Jerusalem on the road between the city and Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. And thus the celebration that we're about to examine surrounding Jesus' approach to Jerusalem here only involved this crowd of pilgrims who've just witnessed Jesus give sight to two blind men. This festive throng is filled with messianic hopes and they've seized on the blind man's identification of Christ. And so as they approach David's royal city, they're clearly viewing Jesus as God's promised deliverer, the Savior who for them is going to take on Rome, releasing them as the past judges have done from their oppressor's bonds. So it's the crowd that celebrates Christ as Messiah in their approach to Jerusalem. And therefore the entry follows the royal acclamation. The entry, in terms of time frame, follows the royal acclamation. And so consequently, the people of Jerusalem aren't yet involved. And this is important because I believe we often hear sermons regarding the fickle nature of Jerusalem's crowds, which could have shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, on this day as we recall. But then just days later, crucify him. And as we see, a close reading of our text reveals that Jerusalem's citizens, the citizenry of Jerusalem, didn't actually shout Hosanna at all, did they? According to verse 10, the citizens of Jerusalem were stirred, or in the New Testament's original language, literally shaken by the commotion taking place on the road into the city. And they asked, who is this? To which the pilgrim crowds responded, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And Emmanuel, I believe that this is just one further reminder for us of how important it is that we study God's word closely and carefully. Is if we desire to know God, and we can only do so as he has revealed himself to us in his word. And therefore, this misreading as it evidences itself, we just can't simply skim over passages or assume things that we've heard are true. We've got to be like the Bereans who Paul exhorted for receiving the gospel with eagerness and then examine the scriptures every day to see if what he had said was true. May we be known as Bereans, Emmanuel. May we be Bereans. Returning to verse 1, as the crowd approached Jerusalem, Matthew records for us how Jesus sent two disciples into town to fetch a donkey and her colt. And this unprecedented act and Jesus had never before required a ride to this point he and his disciples as you know from the gospels had walked everywhere so this unprecedented act performed at this precise location Bethphage was a, a site recalling David's King David's exile and return back in 2nd Samuel chapter 16 along with references in Ezekiel in his prophecy of the Messiah given us in chapter 11 of Ezekiel verse 23 and Zechariah and his prophecies of the Messiah, chapter 14 in his book, chapter 14 and verse 4. So in this unprecedented act, performed at this precise location, I believe this revealed Jesus' purposeful decision 
to no longer mask his saving mission. He recognized that the time had come to reveal his true identity as consistent with all that God had promised. And so Matthew explains Jesus' request here of a cult by reference to Zechariah 9.9, where the prophet declared, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. Describing Zion's long-awaited king, Zechariah is calling Jerusalem to rejoice greatly, to, to shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Actions that we see mark the crowd, there as in verse 8 we read that they spread their cloaks on the ground while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted Hosanna to the son of David this morning as we practiced in our choir time. Some were threatening to strip our, our palm bush of sorts and wave them during the song and we suggested that was probably unwise. But this was the spirit that's being described here. And so in, in all of these actions, church, I believe we see Jesus declaring his kingship for Jerusalem, but not only for Jerusalem. Because Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 9 continues with verse 10. Zechariah 9.10 saying, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He, that's the Messiah, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. So, Jesus isn't merely Israel's prophesied king. He's king over all the earth. And unlike the kings of the earth, as marked by his ride, his rule is gentle and marked by peace. Do you know this king's rule in your life? Friends, the beauty of Christ's reign is that it is marked by a peace which passes all Understanding. In other words, Christ's rule is reflected by a calm unrelated to your life's context. For those who were with us celebrating Jay Moore's life yesterday, you can attest to this reality. There's no way that a, a woman in Cheryl's condition, having lost her husband so abruptly, could stand before her church family and proclaim her Redeemer lives if she didn't have this hope. When we speak of a peace that passes understanding, well, that's it, friends. It doesn't make sense when we consider the contexts in which we live, circumstances. It surpasses those. His peace is such that you never need fear those who oppose you. Why? Because he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. You needn't worry about tomorrow. Why? Because he holds tomorrow. And all of its activities in his hands. Proverbs 16.4. Do you know this king's rule? Or is your life racked with worry? Overcome with fear? Do you find yourself stressed by the unknown? Overwhelmed by the thought that that which is out of your control is going to consume you? Do you sleep deeply at night? Or do you toss and turn trying desperately to make plans and to use everything in your power to ensure that your tomorrow is fulfilling? Jesus declared himself to be king by riding a donkey and then by clearing the temple. I believe Jesus' second declaration of his kingship was given as he cleared the temple. There in verse 12, Matthew writes that Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. So as kings victoriously entered their cities following battles, the first place that they would have returned to was their palace. 
And in the same way, we see King Jesus enter Jerusalem and return to his palace, the temple, only he refers to it not as a temple or a palace, but as his house, as he quotes Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7. And then we see Jesus drive out all of these temple merchants that are located in, in what would have been in the temple precinct, the court of Gentiles. Now, general belief is that these traders likely sold animals for temple sacrifice, as well as trading a pilgrim's money into what would have been the Tyrian coinage used in the temple's offerings. As if any of you have had the privilege of going to Chuck E. Cheese, you have to turn in. I have numerous times. It's a blessing. You need to get it. But you turn in your real money for Chucky's money, and then Chucky's money enables you to play all the different games that are in this. So in the same sense, pilgrims would turn in their money for Tyrian coinage that enabled them to purchase the needed sacrifices. But no sooner has Jesus entered the court than he begins overturning these money changers' tables and benches then of those selling doves. And so it's a purifying, clearly cleansing action, which he explained by referring to the prophetic word of Isaiah where it is written, he says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And church, I share with one pastor theologian the belief that there's two things that make this Old Testament quote from Christ so significant. One is that the context in Isaiah is about the coming kingdom of God. And so Jesus, in use of this quote, is placing himself in the position of king, the coming king, coming with this kingdom. And the other then, the other thing of importance here is that the context here is as we saw with the previous point, the context is global, not just Jewish, because Isaiah 56, verse 6, one verse before the quotation reads thus, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So as Jesus provides this prophetic word to explain his actions in the temple. He does so with one that underlines his coming as king. And it declares his reign shall be over all people. All people as he's going to gather exiles from every tongue and tribe to his house of prayer. Have you found a home in the Father's house of prayer? Have you been adopted as the scriptures describe into his family by grace through faith? Can you say with confidence this morning that you have a relationship with God in which he hears you and in which you speak to him? Or are you just hoping that you're good enough on your sentiments, that your sincerity in religious activity is going to stand you in good stead? Jesus declared himself king by riding a donkey, displaying his rule of peace. Jesus declared himself king by clearing the temple, demonstrating his passion for his father's glory and by healing the blind and lame. I believe Jesus' third declaration of his kingship is conveyed in verse 14 where Matthew tells us that the blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Can you imagine what an amazing, incredible display of power this must have been? Because remember, the blind and lame here aren't simply people with a headache, migraine, sore throats. I and mean, we were talking about paralyzed people, people who can't 
care for themselves because they can't see or, or even move. And these are the untouchables of society who bore the unusual, unfair stigma of this time, of being in their conditions due to God's discipline. And yet, having cleansed the temple, who does Jesus now welcome? The unclean. And he heals them. A public demonstration of what Matthew addressed back in chapter 11. We're following Christ's sending out of his 12 disciples to the lost sheep of Israel, at which time he'd given them, if you recall, the authority to drive out evil spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. Matthew tells us then that Jesus went through the towns in Galilee teaching and preaching. When news of Christ's ministry reached John the Baptist, who was in prison, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? In other words, I'm hearing these rumors. Are you the Messiah, the coming king of Israel? And what was Jesus' response? Do you remember? Matthew records how Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. In other words, yes, yes I am, John, I am the coming king. So Jesus is clearly responding positively to John's question. So why not simply say yes? Why respond with the references to the blind and lame in church? I believe the answer is because in Isaiah chapter 35, the prophet describes the coming Messiah in this way. Say to those with fearful hearts. Is your heart fearful this morning? Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. In his coming as king, Jesus bears the standard of healing in both the now and for all eternity. And he graciously calls all who are his to take shelter under that banner. Do you know King Jesus' healing power? Have you experienced his grace in salvation? Church, right here, I just want to urge us to lift our eyes in light of these promises from the physical, which is so fleeting. And I want to challenge us to fix our eyes on the eternal, on Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. For in this action, I believe, we'll, we'll be kept from the selfish, so self-centered, limited understanding of Christ's healing as pertaining solely to our physical well-being in the now. And we'll be directed to see the God-glorifying, unlimited nature of Christ's healing as it sustains our spiritual well-being for eternity. In other words, in Christ's first coming as king, he did not promise to bring our best lives now, free from sickness, disease, and death. And J. Moore's life attests to that fact. That man lived with suffering in a manner so akin to a biblical character that we are familiar with, Job. And you can't say that he missed out on God's promised blessings. Christ's first coming didn't promise us our best life now. But he did promise to heal us spiritually. Do you know Christ's healing power? And have you experienced his life-giving grace? Jesus declared himself king by riding a donkey, clearing the temple, healing 
the blind and lame, and then by accepting the praise of children. This is the fourth way I believe Jesus revealed himself to be king. And Matthew records it there, verse 15, 16, when he writes, But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes. Jesus replied, Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? So these children's words resemble those as we've seen earlier by the crowds that were spoken back in verse 9. And they were all taken from Psalm 118, verse 25, where the psalmist sings, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. And as the son of David, these children were simply echoing what they'd heard the crowd singing of Jesus. The Messiah, the King is here. At which point we see these chief priests become angry because they recognize the implications. These claims threatened the status quo, threatened their religious industry, if you will. It would take a major knock if, if the king had arrived because they prided themselves on being in the know. They were the most spiritually attuned, supposed spiritually attuned. And if anybody should be the first to welcome the king, then it would be them. And so if he had indeed arrived and they'd missed it, well, it would mean that they didn't have the political pool they thought they had. They were stuck on the outside while these infants were going in ahead of them. And Jesus could see all of these things racing through their minds. And so he answers them with a single word. I love it. Yes. Before he directs their attention to an astonishing quote from Psalm 8. And what makes this quote so incredible, church, is as one pastor theologian observes, it refers to God. Psalm 8 reads, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Don't, don't miss, church. Jesus is receiving praise from the lips of children, and to explain it, he quotes Psalm 8, where children are praising who? God. Now, I don't know that there could be a clearer confession to Christ's full divinity contained in the scripture that we've seen to this point than that. Now, I know I said earlier when we were talking with the kids that I believe that this text revealed Jesus' fourfold attestation to being the son of David, the Messiah, by his actions and not his words. And I, I still hold to that because it's in Jesus' acceptance of both the crowd's praise and that of the children here that is demonstrating his kingship. But at the same time, as you just noted, this quotation from Psalm 8 is as verbal an acknowledgement as one can get of his being God. As he basks there in these children's praise, a praise that he had ordained because he's God. So do you know this Jesus? And he isn't simply a great guy who lived a long time ago and set such a fantastic example for us in his dealings with others that we ought to emulate him. And if we did, then the whole world would be a better place. No. Jesus isn't simply a human being. He's God the Son. True God of true God. Begotten 
not made of the same essence as the Father for us and our salvation. He came down from heaven and he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and he was made human. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. Do you know this Jesus? And is he your king? And I hope and pray that you do. Because right now, and I mean now, by now I mean in this moment now, at this point in time, in history, Jesus' kingship at this moment is not as it will one day be. In Christ's first coming, and in this initial inauguration, declaration of kingship we studied in Jerusalem, he inaugurated a season of salvation during which men and women may still change sides. There's still time this morning, right now. Friends, we've been given this moment, having heard the gospel of God's great salvation through his son, King Jesus, you may still bow your knee before Christ and swear allegiance to him as your king by confessing your sin and believing in him. Today is the day of salvation. And friends, it won't last. It will not last forever because there's coming a day when King Jesus will return. And on that day, his kingship's his kingship's going to look very different. Radically different than it does now. The apostle John describes that day in Revelation 19:11 when he writes this. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. His rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and thigh, he has this name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, on that day, it's going to be too late to switch sides. All that will be left for you to do is to face King Jesus' judgment and to answer for why you refuse to bow before him. And you will, then, you will then bow before him because he's king and be cast out of his presence where for the rest of eternity you will suffer everlasting destruction. Would you submit to Jesus today? Because right now, in a sense, Jesus is still riding that donkey. And he's offering you peace. Peace to all who would trust him. Please don't wait. Please don't wait. Because on a day unknown to all but the Father. Jesus is going to mount that war horse. And he's going to return to strike down all his enemies. Would you make him your king today? Let's pray. Father God, you have promised 
in your word a salvation for all who confess their sins and believe in your son Jesus. God, this is a grace gift that not a one of us can come to but by your enabling. God, and you have determined that you so bring to life dead men and women through the heard word of your gospel. Father, we've heard that gospel. We've seen in your word how King Jesus came and inaugurated an era of peace. The time during which men and women may still respond to this gospel and find life. But God, there's coming a day when Jesus will return. And Lord God, your people, we, your people, long for that day. But at the same time, we recognize that there are many for whom that day will be a nightmare. It will be judgment, just and righteous. But God, it will be for them horrible. Lord, and you have given us the great responsibility of proclaiming this gospel. Lord, if there is anyone here who has yet to acknowledge Jesus as King, Lord, I pray that today you would enable that for your glory. Because God, on, one, on a day that you know, we will all bow our knees. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father. God, and then you will welcome into your presence all those who are yours. And Jesus, we long for that day. But we long for all to go with us. And we pray that that would be your grace work today in the lives of any. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.